You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome once again to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and I've got another great interview for you this week. But before we get into that, let's talk about our sponsors. MailChimp helps entrepreneurs and small businesses with their email marketing efforts. You can manage your contacts, send emails, and track the results of your campaigns. MailChimp just had another update fairly recently where you can access their knowledge database, add video content blocks for YouTube, and add subject line emojis. It's pretty cool. Take these features for a test run today by signing up for a free account at MailChimp.com. If you want a new domain name for your next project, check out Hover. They've got hundreds of top-level domains to choose from, they offer a free private registration, and they've got world-class telephone and online customer support. Purchase a domain today and use the promo code SECONDYEAR and save 10% off your purchase. Creative Market sells graphics, fonts, themes, photos, and a whole lot more starting at only $2. They give away a new selection of free goods every Monday, today's Monday, and they've got great bundle promotions every month. Head over to creativemarket.com and check it out. All right, now let's get on with the show. This week, I talked with Christy Tillman, Design Director for Society of Grownups. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Uh, my name is Christy Tillman, and I'm the Design Director at Society of Grownups in Boston, Massachusetts. So I have to ask, what is the design scene like in Boston? <sighs> That's interesting. So Boston is a little has this little tech scene. It's not as big as you know, Silicon Valley or even New York, but it's very close probably in size to New York. And so there's a lot of design happening around technology. Before I was at Society of Grownups, I was at IDEO for about four years, which is a global design consultancy. And there I worked a range of projects from like diabetes pins to packaging for 2,000 pound paper rolls. There's some studio presence, there's some consultancies, so it's a, it's a mix, but um, it's definitely, I think, centered around a lot around technology. Is it, Boston's a big university town, too, so we have MIT and Harvard. There's a lot, a lot of, like, nerdy, I want to say geeky type of thinking in Boston that I think kind mm-hmm. of colors the design scene, and not in a bad way. It's just a very kind of different kind of angle than you have in other cities, I think. Were you also a design director at IDEO? No, I was just a designer, um, an individual contributor there. I was there for about four years, and I worked on a range of things, from digital products to packaging to brands. It just ranged. And now you're at the Society of Grownups, like you said, as the design director. Mm-hmm. Kind of walk me through what's what's a typical day like working there? <laughs> well, it's a startup, so there's really no typical day. I actually worked on Society of Grownups while I was at IDEO as a project, and I loved it so much, I decided to leave IDEO and go over to Society of Grownups, and I was the first designer there. And then my role was a lot about execution, so I spent a lot of time making things. And now as we grow our design team and our other teams, and as we get a little bit older, we launched in October, we're getting more strategic. So my role is really kind of shifting from being you know, strictly someone who executes to someone who kind of contributes to the design strategy to achieve our um, business objectives. So it's really, I'm kind of in a shift, you know, in terms of my career from being an individual contributor 
to someone who's doing more of the thinking and strategy, which is very exciting for me. Has it been a difficult shift in that respect? I wouldn't say difficult. I feel like I've learned about as much between October and now as I have my entire design career prior, including school. It's, wow. yeah, it's a, it's a steep learning curve, just a different type of way of thinking. Also too, when you're the only designer or you're, you know, the first designer now, cause we, we have another designer we're bringing on about three more, you don't really have a sounding board. So you're doing a lot of stuff and people kind of expect you to be the expert and you know, you're just like flying by the seat of your pants and figuring it all out right as you go. So it's, it's interesting in that regard. But I wouldn't say difficult as in like trying. I would say it's just a lot to learn and pretty challenging, but it's the right type of challenge. You know, I kind of feel like my career, in terms of my career, it's like where I should be at this point. So it's been really good for me. And now in terms of being design director, like you said, you're bringing on some new designers. How has that been? Because you're going, you know, into almost like a, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's sort of like you're a hiring manager of sorts where you're looking at resumes you're looking at profiles and kind of trying to make that decision. Yeah. So it's been interesting because I've never hired before. So I'm really kind of tweaking the hiring process as we go. It's like my latest interview is probably much better than my first interview and what to look for. Um, At first I was really looking, I think at portfolios and I was being a little bit too concerned with the finished product. But as I go, I've been kind of really focusing on process because I've been thinking a lot about, how I would like our design team to approach design. So that's been interesting. Number two, it's been interesting looking at the variety of portfolios and the variety of types of people who call themselves designers. <laughs> the, the hiring <laughs> process is extremely difficult. I would say for every 50 portfolios I see, maybe one is someone that I might like to talk to. So you get a lot wow. of stuff. A lot what? Go ahead. And, and this can, and I don't necessarily mean for this particular, you know, position, but what kind of things are you looking for? Like when you're saying out of 50, you choose one, that's a small number. So I'm looking for people who obviously can think, people who can show process, people who do have a command of the craft. I'm also looking for people who can add a different perspective to our team. So if you look at our team page on our website, societygrownups.com, you can see that we're a pretty diverse team. And so the people we serve, grown-ups, our grown-ups are a pretty diverse group. And so that's also something that I've been trying to kind of bring on on our design team so that we can have a variety of perspectives as we build out our product. So it's not even, you know, the individual person, too. It's also how they fit into the larger team. That's been something that's been increasingly growing in the back of my head as, you know, we were, I was like employee number seven, I think. And I think we're getting up to about... 20 something people on the team and we're growing like super fast. So Mm -hmm. it's like the culture is constantly changing. So really thinking about how people can contribute to the culture and also to, you know, fit well within the current culture. So it's a variety of things. Sometimes someone's super talented right in the portfolio, but doesn't mean they're going to be a great fit for the team. So it's really learning to balance those things, looking at portfolios and also interviewing people and really talking to them and getting into their process. One thing super important that I've noticed too, especially now that I'm hiring like a junior position before I was looking at a lot of mid-level designers, but a lot of junior designers, I think don't have a super great command of kind of really going through their thought process. 
So that's something that I've I've noticed and I've been, you know, trying to encourage them through interviews to really kind of bring that out of them. Oh, like to get them to talk through how yeah, they got Yeah, get them to talk the how they design, got yeah. got there, what they tried, what worked, what didn't work, why did they decide to do that instead of that? Did they consider this? Did they consider that? And trying to really kind of bring out kind of their thought process in the interview, which has been super, I think is super important because we're iterating on our product all the time and we have to have people who can, you know, who can think and who can also communicate with why they made certain decisions. Now, let's talk a little bit about before you were working at Society of Grownups, even before you were working at at IDEO. So as I, you know, kind of was doing my research, I saw that some of your first design jobs were with athletic companies. You were working, doing some work with Reebok, you were doing some work with Puma, and then you kind of switched, I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong here, to more of a, a civic design space with the work that you kind of said you were doing for IDEO. What was the turning point there? So what happened when I was in design school, I landed an internship at Converse. I think it was my junior year. Yeah, it was my junior year in design school. I and so I drove from Kansas City. I went to design school in Kansas City to Massachusetts, and I interned at Converse for the summer. And it was the most amazing, life-changing, career-affirming internship ever. And that kind of perpetuated itself into more shoe company jobs. So then I interned at Payless. And then I went to work at Reebok, then I went to work at Puma, and then I went to work at IDEO. So it kind of just perpetuated itself until it kind of just switched. Like, there were really no more shoe companies to work for in Boston, so I had to kind of change it up. The thing with civic design is, I've always had that in my heart. One of the things I think is super important as a Black designer is using my kind of design skills to solve real-world problems. That's kind of like something that lays really dear to me because I feel like, you know, we give our chops away to corporations all day, nine to five, so that we can, you know, pay our bills. But our skill set has larger ramifications outside of, you know, corporate and business applications. So that is what kind of drives me. Uh, Like if I was independently wealthy, I'd probably just open up a design consultancy where I just do nonprofit work and just not even get paid for it. But unfortunately, I have to pay the bills and keep the lights on. So, you know, I have a job. <laughs> I hear you. But I've also, like, I make sure that my side projects kind of have that heart. So I've worked on some job software, the Detroit Water Project. I volunteer with uh, Boston Youth Design. I'm going to get involved in a sort of performing arts here, I think, soon. So I'm always looking, like, to do something with design, you know, for the public. I think it's super important because our skill set is pretty rare. And, you know, we're solving problems and companies are charging us, you know, and giving us a seat at the table. You have the ability to solve problems. And so how can you do that for our people? And so that's super important to me. Like I, I will always be involved in something on the side that has to do with giving back. I think it's like an imperative. Speaking of the Detroit Water Project, one thing that I I like so much about that project is that it's collaboration that was born out of necessity, right? Both you and Tiffany, Tiffany Bell, saw a need, you worked together, not just to address it, you know, not just saying, oh, look at what's going on in Detroit, but you also put together something to solve it. I really like that. Yeah, it's funny because I had only met Tiffany on Twitter and she and I tried to work on another side project a few years earlier that kind of flamed out and it was just because the technology didn't exist for what we were trying to do and so 
it was so interesting for us to kind of come back again, circle around again and find something that actually worked. Yeah, it was really just, hey, we see this problem. We thought it was pretty ridiculous that the United Nations need to be called in for a water problem in our country. Like, what's going on with that? And it was really just a matter of, like, not even having a chance to think about why something won't work, just basically doing it, and boom. So I think it was Tiffany found, like, a list of account numbers, like a public list. Detroit, like, lists uh, businesses that haven't paid their utility bills. And so we got access to the PDF. It was just on their website. And so we stuck the account number in, and we realized that we could get access to the account just by having an account number. So it was like, okay, so what could we do if we had access to other people's account numbers? All they need to do is give us their account number, right? And so we were, and we just threw some Google spreadsheets together, and it was so trying. She and I were tweeting it out, and people were just ignoring us. And um, we were just like, we just need one person, one person to give us their account number. And I think I went to Facebook and posted something on one of the organizations who's been organizing water around water issues in Detroit and account numbers just started rolling in after that. And we're like, Oh boy. Like, I mean, they just started rolling in. So she and I paid like the first couple of bills out of our pocket because we were mm. still trying to get donors too. like, while we were trying to get donors, we were still trying to get signups. What ended up happening is it's easier to get donors than to get people to sign up to get their bill. And there's all kinds of technology issues around why it's harder to get people in need signed up than it is to get people who, have the money to sign up so we just had donors coming in after that and so we were we just started matching them by hand and it just got so big that we couldn't match by hand anymore so I solicited a few friends on Twitter that we trusted to help us match by hand while Tiffany was able to hack together some robots to kind of do some matching in the background so it just took off and now sort of spinning into a, a company that will address other utility issues has the city of Detroit been working with you all? Have they been cooperative? Uh, yeah. So at first, we didn't get much acknowledgement from them. And I think even there was like an article, I want to say in The Guardian, but don't quote me, where someone from the city was like, ignore them. We have our own programs. But eventually, they've come around and helped. Tiffany talked to them a few times about helping us get access. Because there's just a whole, like, one, the more we started getting to this, the more we saw, like, all these issues around how hard it is to pay a water bill. For example, if you've ever had a payment plan, your old balance is not in your new balance. So even if you went to go pay your old balance, you couldn't pay it online. And then they also don't have a, at that time, they didn't have a phone system. So that means you had to go somewhere to physically pay that portion of the bill because you couldn't pay it online. And you know, that creates all kinds of problems for people who work nine to five and have different schedules. So there's just a lot of things around the simple act of paying the bill that started coming up. And we were able to shine some spotlight on that. And I think that also, too, they started incorporating, too. So we were able to get more people paid. And it's well into the six figures by now about how much we've paid. That's awesome. Congratulations to both of you for really, you know, seeing that problem and then doing something about it. When it comes, you know, time for you to work on a new project, and this can be, you know, a personal project or even something that you're doing for work. How do you approach it? What's kind of your creative workflow? Where do you start? I generally start by looking to see what else has been done around that, what else exists. I'm not a big kind of believer in reinventing the wheel without making sure it's completely necessary. So really looking and see what what can I borrow, what can I actually build upon, especially 
with time being so limited, especially with work and, and, and side projects. So yeah, I kind of start there. I'm, if I'm working on, say, an app or something, so there's actually been an app that I've been thinking about. It's usually generally going and making a mock-up really quickly using some prototype tools like Pixate and such just to get like a general flow down and see if it works and see if it kind of jives with my idea. If it's something that is, you know, print-based, do a few rounds. Also, too, I love to get feedback. So that's been an interesting thing. When I was like the only designer at Society of Grown Ups, I didn't really have design feedback. And that was kind of not a great place for me because I like to get a lot of feedback. So now mm-hmm. that we have designers there, now generally taking it to people, who, too, who are the stakeholders who may not even be designers and also getting their feedback as well before making, you know, a couple of revisions to see what works. Throwing it out there and seeing if it sticks. One of the really things that happened with the Detroit Water Project for me kind of informed my process was being less afraid about throwing something out really early. That's always been kind of a problem for me, I think, as a designer, is really putting things out that are too polished. And you, by that time, you've invested too much time in something that might not have worked. So one of the interesting things with the Detroit Water Project is we threw out Google Spreadsheets, right? We didn't even have a website for the first iteration. And that has actually informed my process a great deal in being able to throw raw things out without having it be super polished, just to, you know, for a gut check or just to get feedback. I used to have a hard time with that before. It was a real struggle to kind of put things out that I didn't think were super perfect. It's been very beneficial to my process to learn when things don't work much earlier with way less time and resources invested. And I think that's kind of an important skill to have and to kind of, you know, get over. Not being super tied to work. I tweet about it a lot, but like work isn't sacred. So that's kind of like my new mantra. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And anything that's been designed can redesign. So like really getting away from holding on too tightly and treating work as if it's precious. If it doesn't work, just get rid of it. So that's kind of how I've been tweaking my personal process, even at work or for personal projects. Speaking again kind of about the Design Details podcast, Mm -hmm. you talked to them about diversity. And I'm so glad, I'm so glad that you pointed out that, you know, this issue of diversity in the design community is a multi-pronged issue. It's not just a pipeline thing. It's not just about focusing on the workplace like it's it's a number of different things it's money it's community it's promotion it's self-confidence it's like all these things that go into this problem as it relates to the number of black designers that are kind of in the industry what are some ways that you think diversity can be increased in the design industry i mean you're a black woman that's a that's a very visible person i feel in the design industry right now like you said i mentioned that is a multifaceted problem i think one of the biggest things is probably well it's what can we do to increase the number then that's also like what can we do to keep people I think it really really starts very young so when I went to school like I went to a very rigorous high school program where art was a huge component and I took a we it was called international baccalaureate and I did art higher level there and higher level meant you spent four years working on art instead of two to test so art was a huge thing for me in high school and my parents always said oh, that's a hobby, you know, it's really cool, you know, they played along, right? The minute I went to Florida A&M for undergrad and I came back home, all of my art stuff that I did in high school was thrown away. (laughs) 
So oh, no. Yeah. My mom cleaned out everything. You know how moms do when you when you leave. They they want to reclaim. Mm-hmm. You had for 18 years. So everything was cleaned out. And all my art was gone away. And that's and I, the reason I say that story is because it's kind of reflective of an attitude, a cultural kind of attitude in general, not to stereotype all black people, because, of course, some people value art. But my parents, you know, they worked hard to get me to a place where I could sustain myself. And so this kind of world, which was foreign to them, was just not going to be it. So I didn't even know what design was. No one had ever even said the word design to me in high school. I went to Florida A&M University. I was in the five-year MBA program. And I, during that process, I met someone who was a designer at the time. They were a designer at Nike. And that was the first time I even heard of a designer as a job. And they did graphic design at Nike. I was like, holy crap, this is it, right? And so I actually dropped out of the five-year program and got my bachelor's and left. And then I went back and got a master's thinking I was going to do history. I got my master's in African-American history. What that did was though, it bought me time to work on my portfolio. So I spent a greater part of the time I was in grad school working on an art portfolio so that I could go to design school. And so I applied to design school and all my professors thought I was going to be applying to PhD programs for history, but I was really applying to design school. And I could not believe that I actually got in. I was like, oh my God. So I got accepted at MICA and a few other schools. And I ended up moving to Atlanta to go to design school. And I was older than everyone. And so that actually kind of paid off because I really knew why I was there. And I really focused, focused, focused. So I spent a year in Atlanta, Atlanta College of Art. They ended up selling themselves a SCAD and I really wasn't with that. So I ended up moving to Kansas City and finishing there. And so I really focused on design, but it took me two degrees to get there. So really exposing people much earlier to the career, working with parents to help them understand that you actually can like have a nice life and be a designer. I think one of the big most important overarching themes is that there's a group of people making things for everyone who do not look like everyone. And that is truly problematic. And that's one of the reasons why this is such a cause to me is because I see all these latent needs that we have that won't even be addressed because there's not enough designers who kind of understand our lens to even think that is a problem worth solving. So give me an example. Give me an example of something like that. So here's something that's been big black Twitter, right? Mm-hmm. People have been talking about how black people have taken over Twitter. They've been talking about it for a couple of years. Oh, African-Americans are more verbal than they are. And that's why they love Twitter, right? So there's this whole huge thing about why black people love Twitter so much. And when you look at Twitter, you can think about some of the conventions that black people have created on Twitter. But it starts to make me think, like, what a social network designed by us for our communication style look like? Here's an example, and he's going to kill me for saying this, but whatever. There's a lot of black people who have started businesses on Twitter, side businesses, hair Mm -hmm. care products, clothing, art, jewelry. What if in the Twitter profiles was something about business reputation? Because a lot Mm. of people have launched themselves on Twitter, right? That's happened in our community. So what if one of the design features was built around this? So what if this community were built around all the needs the thing is the way black people use Twitter, right? But because no one's like, because we have limited designers and technologists that address these things, these kind of things don't get built. And I mean, they exist, all kinds of things. Tristan, you know, 
he's working on bevel with shaving for black men who have curly hair that comes out of their faces. So he's working on these razors, right, that help black people with curly hair shave without getting razor bumps. That's just another example. So there's a tons and tons of needs that we have that really won't be addressed as a problem because no one, one, sees the value in those kinds of thinking, and two, they don't really know how to make money off of it. And so it's just like, what if, you know, that's a huge issue in terms of like, exposing kids earlier why we need to expose them earlier so that that we can kind of work on these problems one of the things i worked on too for a fellowship was job application software so we know we talk a lot about the prison the, the school to prison pipeline how do we help people that come back from our communities settle back in and become productive citizens like there's all kinds of challenges around applying for jobs having access to technology so these are like problems that i see popping up everywhere that could be solved by people who, one, were close to the problem and two, cared about it. So, I mean, as we become a more global culture, this is kind of, you know, just going to increase in terms of all of these latent needs that we have in the community that probably won't be addressed because 99% of the design field is wider Asian. And so that's kind of, you know, why it's super important to me. So exposing kids early and often and the importance of it too, and also too that you can, you know, live a good life. I think design agencies and employers have a big kind of play in this in terms of creating cultures where people feel welcomed as an employee and not fitting people into these sort of cultures where things are valued that might not necessarily fit with their cultural idea. For example, I think Harvard Business Review actually put out an article that said something about, I want to say 70% of cultural minorities are uncomfortable at work. I believe it. Yeah, they, I believe that. Yeah, they went through a laundry list of all the reasons why. And even in my design career, I'm not going to call anybody out. I can see why. And I've also been in that position of being extremely uncomfortable. So working and having design kind of employers kind of think about these things is another big thing because people will leave. People will leave the field because they just don't want to work in that kind of hostile environment where they're the only one all the time. Right. And I mean, I think it's important, like even when you're saying like hostile environment from the employer standpoint, they don't even see it that way. Exactly. You know, from the minority worker standpoint, there might be a number of different microaggressions that are going on, which just build and just layer on top of each other, which to them is what can make the workplace kind of seem like it's a it's a hostile environment. Like I know that culture fit is something that is very important for companies that are trying to kind of recruit on that diversity angle. But if your workplace is not inclusive enough for when those people get there and they end up leaving in what, six months or so, if that long, you know, what does that say about your company? That's totally it. I'm glad you said the word microaggressions. That's totally it. And I don't think anybody has any bad intent. You know, they don't mean to make you feel uncomfortable, but it's just, like you said, it's sort of a death by a thousand cuts. These little small things that kind of ladder up to a larger problem. And to circle back around too to what you to that is I think I was talking earlier about my process and about being super tied to polished work. I think that as a designer, those two things are kind of tied together because, you know, in the workplace, it's sort of like as a designer, to some degree, you have to have build your reputation. And so I think, too, that confidence thing in the workplace and being able to put things out earlier and not feel judged about it or not have your abilities called into question is pretty huge. I was talking to Bryn 
from the Design Details podcast today on Twitter about confidence in the workplace. And he and I were talking. He was like, I can't believe you are nervous to do my podcast. And I was like, look, dude, there's all kinds of issues around confidence in the workplace due to sexism, racism, all types of things. So I think those two, now that we're talking, I'm kind of like making that insight together. Those two things, I think, were heavily linked. Kind of related to that, you know, there's also things that can happen outside of the workplace that may end up kind of contributing to that. And the reason I'm saying that I'm talking about your article that you had wrote for the New York Times where you spoke about women and minorities being the targets of attack online. Say, for example, you are a designer, you know, online and you represent yourself on, you know, Twitter or some message board or something like that. And you're getting slings about stuff while you're not even at work. You're getting things that are are being said to you or you might be getting harassed or things like that, that you may end up, you know, subconsciously bringing into the workplace, especially if those same types of microaggressions. Well, I wouldn't even say microaggressions. I feel like online everyone has keyboard courage and they just say what they want. <laughs> it's, it's not even micro. It's like totally aggro. Uh, but but then you get in the workplace and it's like, you know, can I live? Can I just come to work and do my job? Why is this such a thing that everyone has to kind of pay attention to? That's a like, great I think point, I, Maurice. That's a great well, yeah, I mean, I feel like, and I don't know, I guess I'm venting a little bit here, but I feel like Nobody, no, you know, minority employee wants to come to work and like be the troublemaker, be the the rabble rouser. We just come here to do our work and get a check and, you know, hopefully contribute to society just like every other employee. We're not coming here to like start some mess, that sort of thing. Yeah. We spend so much time at work. It's like (laughs) the amount of time you spend at work. I don't know about you, but I'm usually at work 60, at least 60 hours a week. We spend so much time there. You have to be comfortable there. Like, I talk to people at work more than I talk to my own mother, you know, in a year. (laughs) (laughs) I know what you mean. Like, so it is that culture fit where you do have to feel comfortable, you know, with your coworkers, but just feeling comfortable just being there as a whole. And I don't think that's something that, right, right. Bring, like, bringing your full self to work, bringing yourself to work 100%, not just. You know, one thing that I used to do when I worked at places before I started my business, I worked at AT AT&T for about two years as a senior designer and I hated it. And I mean, I showed up. I was like Marshawn Lynch. I was like, I'm just here so I don't get fined. (laughs) Like, like, don't talk to me. I just came here. Like, I'll get in my queue, put my headphones on and just work until my shift was up and then I'll go home. And that was it. And, you know, that it was in a way like some self-preservation because I was getting those kind of like slings from like coworkers and managers and stuff, just like minor things that it's like, you know, Oh, don't take it so bad. But you hear it every day. It's like, I just came here to go to work. Like, you cut me some slack, you know? And the thing what you're saying that, and then you build a reputation of not being social. You like, you're always combating stereotypes and you sort of can't (laughs) win. Yes. So I don't know if you heard a stereotype threat before, but basically it's a theory that, if you are the product of a culture that's heavily stereotyped, you perform worse in situations because you feel like you're always combating those stereotypes. And I think that's a very, very real thing. I mean, it's a confidence shaker. So you go to AT&T or your cube and you have on your headphones, it's like, oh, well, Maurice, he's not social. He doesn't talk with us. He doesn't come out with us for beers. And now you have all of this stuff that happens outside of work. Because Mm -hmm. that's a huge thing in the design community, too. And when you talk about perks, you talk about design culture, those things become huge filters for the type of people who want to come work at a certain place. So a lot of rapport 
with people at work and with your manager happens outside of the workplace now. You know, people go for drinks, they do this, they do that, they socialize. The design community is super casual about those things. And it actually ends up, although it's like presented to you as a perk, it's almost more to your detriment than say a more rigid corporate environment where people have more of a definition between work life and personal life. Because if you don't participate, then you're being painted in a negative light for not being, you know, you're not a team player. Exactly. I've heard that so I've heard that so many times. You're not a team player. It, you're not very social. I'm like, look, I'm just showing up to go to work. Exactly. Too. Why, why are you busting my balls about not going out for a beer after work? Like, I got stuff to do, you know? And, you know, I don't know very many black people that go out for beer. And so that... <laughs> but I say that because that is like, if you go to Startup XYZ... On their uh-huh. perk page, it's like, oh, well, we go out for beer or we go kayaking or you can bring your dog. And all those things say to me, I I'm don't want to work I'm not working anywhere with a dog. I'm sorry. <laughs> if it's not a vet's office or a kennel, I'm not doing it. Right. I don't want, I'm not. I mean, I love dogs. Don't get me wrong. I don't love dogs when I'm trying to work. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm saying. So those perks become filters. If I go to Startup XYZ page, I can look at the perks and see all the reasons why I would never want to work there. And I've been approached by a lot of startups, and I have turned them all down because <laughs> their perks tell me that this is a place that I might not fit. So when we talk about diversity in the workplace, you have to look at in culture fit versus maybe culture ad. Mm-hmm. Those types of things become like huge filters for people. Like it's just um, go ahead. No, I was gonna say I'm. I'm just so glad you mentioned that. That's such a for me. That's like a eureka moment like perks become filters i never really thought about it that way but that does that is what it ends up becoming like if you don't fit in with our you know we dress up every tuesday i'm like i just i just gotta i'm just here to go to work <laughs> I, I just need to get a check so i can pay my bills i don't want to dress up in a mustache i i have worked at places where that was like a thing like right you dress up every exactly. tuesday or something and i'm like like maurice why aren't you dressing up i'm Really? I had to take two buses to get here. You want me to come to work dressed like a... No, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not doing that. Right. And so then you're like doing <laughs> your real job, right? And then it's a whole other job just to be at work and to participate in those social things that aren't necessarily like the things you would want to do. So you start like bringing less and less of your real self to work and it becomes a chore to literally go to work and perform socially and culturally. Yeah. So. I think design employers have to start like taking those things into account when they say they want to be diverse and not peg people. And I think startups too, I think startups, and I say that because there's opportunity for equity. And when we talk about maybe wealth building and entrepreneurship, you know, working at a startup is a good way to kind of get into that field. But a lot of startups are really, especially really focus on creating a culture like they'll have five employees and claim they have a culture and they just create culture that sound good but what they're doing is they're advertising to one group of people and so I, yeah. I think that's a huge problem like I think that what it is and it's sort of something that you you touched on earlier where you said that you spend so much time with these people at work sometimes even more time than you like talk to your family or something like that And so I feel like if you don't have, you know, when we're talking about diversity just in general in the design field, if you don't have that diversity in your personal life and you won't have it in your professional life. And so that comes into play with like conferences or references for jobs or things like that. So I wonder if all of these sort of big overarching culture fit type of things, these perks 
are their way of trying to like meld the two because they know that they're spending so much time with these people on a personal level, but also on a professional level. So is there some way that we can merge these two to make it, you know, easier? I don't know. Yeah. But- I think you're, I think you're hitting on something to there. And the interesting thing that you touch on too, is the fact that, and this is pretty well known statistic that most people are friends with people that look like them. So most yeah. white people have white friends and most black people have black friends and the two really never cross. So when you start talking about perks and you know, what's cool and what you would like to have at your workplace, of course people are going to create a culture around what they like. And I'm not really faulting anyone for that, right? It's just it's a human thing. You know, if I like kayaking, I might think that's a great thing. And I want to go kayaking with my coworkers because my coworkers are people that I want to like and want to spend time with, like you just said. But also, too, I just think that there was a really good article on Model View Culture which is a great kind of internet site that writes a lot about design and technology culture. Mm -hmm. It's a criticism site. And they actually have a really good article there written by some engineers from Etsy about how to create perks that include everyone. Some of the things they talked about were like making sure that kind of things happen on the clock. For example, instead of going out for beers, have something at work where other people, where people can one be in the vicinity. They don't have to do things on their off time. For example, because that excludes parents, it excludes people who don't want to go for beer. Um, so they gave a laundry list of really cool things that you could do to be more inclusive about perks. But the, my larger point is really is that if people say that they care about diversity, they care about having different perspectives in their workplace because they understand that part of design is creating friction and part of design is having different perspectives because you just can't know it all, then they have to adjust. Like... It just has to happen. And if you decide that you don't want to just just be, just, you know, stay that way. Some people can, or some organizations decide that's not really what they care about. Or the diversity may not be ethnic diversity. It could be based on religion or sexuality, whatever. But if an org says that they care, then they should they should reconsider kind of the structure that they're putting forth. Because it's, it's a huge advertising mechanism or the detractor. It's been a detractor right. for me. I've been approached by startups before. And the culture just reads juvenile on the perk page so i you know i don't want to i don't want to go work there right and it's not just about having maybe a few minorities kind of trotted out on your careers page to give the you know illusion like oh yeah we're diverse look at all look at these two black people that we have sitting (laughs) on our team we're so diverse we we've got so much diverse i feel like we both just preached a word there about all of this yeah yeah (laughs) because the interesting thing to me too is is I'm not really sure a lot of organizations really understand the value of diversity. It's sort of becoming a PC buzzword and a lot of people are just pandering to it and not really understanding the true kind of value in terms of quality of product and also their bottom line. So, uh, you know, I've, I've seen it just presented very shallowly, even the talk about like immigration and HB1 visas for technology companies, you know, like, well, we want immigrants to come to the United States so that it can help us get rich. That's basically what they're saying. We Mm -hmm. want to create a workforce to help us get rich. It's not about valuing a different perspective. It's not about any of the other good reasons. It makes sense to have different types of people on your team. It's it's simply about, you know, the capitalistic point of view, point of line. And I really kind of don't like the way that kind of diversity discussion is going, especially in technology. I feel like design isn't really even really addressing it nearly as much as technology 
but I don't know if that's good oh, or no. bad. That's bad, and they're not. They're really not. Yeah, I really do. I, I think it's bad. A lot of design publications and stuff really shy away from it. I mean, this is. I mean, like I'm coming up on two years with Revision Path, and it's they shy away from it. They really do not want to talk about race, gender diversity. Yeah, that's fine. Mm-hmm. That's cool. We'll talk about that. Racial diversity. Eh, we don't want to go there. Well, we may look and see what design looks like in Japan, but we're not really super interested in like what's going on here, you know, because a lot of the design media is very U.S. centric. So I think when people are looking at that, they're looking from these publications that are here in the States that are kind of setting the tone. And it does show that like the design community is a big monoculture. One thing that you mentioned on the Design Details podcast, because you were talking about black designers and you mentioned Eddie Opara, uh, you mentioned Jared Arandu. The woman that, that you were referencing, I think you were talking about Gail Anderson. Yes, that is who I was talking about. I'm sorry, Gail, if you're listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like really like when people think about black designers, there's like a handful that come up and then it's like, I don't, I don't know who else is out there, you know. But and then it gives the impression that then no one is out there, which I'm hoping that Revision Path and there are other podcasts and websites that are showcasing black tech and black designers, too, that are kind of showing like, no, we're here we may not be on that same like huge level as an Eddie Opara or something like that, but we're, we're here, we're in the industry. Like everyone is not at the same level as a Frank Chimero or something like that. So, but we know that there's a variety of white designers out there. So why not show there's like a variety of black designers, a variety of Latino designers that are out there. So it's just important to have the optics of the design community kind of reflect what's really out there, you know? Right. Yeah. So you said something about, you think it's bad. The reason I asked you if it was bad, because I feel like if you can't have the discussion, honestly, should you even have it? So, like, the design community seems to be truly shying away from the diversity discussion. It's rampant in tech. But just mm-hmm. looking at how it's unfolding in tech, I wonder if it's better if the design community isn't having it. Because how fruitful would it be? I guess that's the question in the back of my head. And I'm, and I'm leaning towards, like, okay, I can hear people saying, well... This discussion has to start somewhere and it can get better over time. But I don't know. Uh-huh. I feel like we've been talking about race in this country for so long and nothing's really gotten better once you start looking at the numbers. So I'm not even sure like, if it's worth talking about anymore. That's kind of like where I am at this moment. I'm, and mm-hmm. I've had a few friends kind of like say, Kirsty, just shut up and do the work. Like, so me, like, for example, we're building out our design team and I've been purposefully, I, no stone has gone unturned. <laughs> I have called my network. I have shout out on Twitter. I have gone to schools. I have scoured the country. I've actually been able to talk to three African-American young women for one of my design positions. Now, I know maybe, and when I say no, I mean can call, I know maybe like four black designers, like who are my friends. That's it. So the fact that I were able to find three more like, just to interview, to me, you know, it doesn't sound like a lot, but it is. So I've been wondering if it's just, like, if it's worth talking about because people are just having these super shallow conversations if I should just shut up and just, you know, do the, do work. the work. Like, find the people to hire and hire them. Me and my friend Alicia right now are working on a conference that we want to throw for a small group of black designers and creatives. Like, should I just do that and just shut up talking about it? I don't know. It, that's just something that's been. I'm, I'm going to be head. like the I'm going to be like the little girl on the El Paso commercial okay. and say 
why not both? <laughs> True. I think a Black Design Conference is so long overdue. The Organization of Black Designers used to have some back in the 90s that I think kind of just died out. They were supposed to have one this year in November, well, not this year, last year in November here in Atlanta, which I don't think ever materialized. So I think it's it's long overdue for that for that sort of a, a fellowship. I think the Organization of Black Designers is trying to make a comeback. Um, I've spoken with Leon Lawrence III, who is the, I think it was the former vice president of the Organization of Black Designers. He's in D.C. He's the, oh, what does he do? He's the art director for USA Weekend Magazine. So him and I have talked, and he said that, yeah, they're trying to, like, we, we had a, a lunch, and we talked about it, and we're trying to get it back going, you know, which I think is is great. And I told him, you know, the real thing that you have to do is make sure you include, like, the younger generation Mm -hmm. in this you know not trying to rag on them or anything but they are you know much older and they're trying to do this i'm like well the younger generation we're here we're out here we're doing stuff we're you know on social media and on facebook and stuff we're visible like reach out to us include us or let us know how we can help out so i'm glad you said that because i looked them up a few years ago and i did not understand i remember seeing their site and it said something like we have ten thousand members or something i was like we might have to talk about that off the podcast okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah i have a lot to say about that yeah we'll have to talk because, about that off the podcast because that's yeah i mean don't get me wrong i've talked with i've talked with david rice who's the the president of the organization of black designers i talked with cure worthy who does their marketing i've talked with leon lawrence III, who's their former vice president so i know that there are other external issues which are sort of preventing it from being what it could be. I am highly specious of that 10,000 number. Okay. Uh, I, I would be specious if it was even a tenth of that personally. Yeah. But, but that's for external reasons that, you know, sorry, listeners, we're not going to talk about that on this podcast, <laughs> maybe later. But <laughs> if you, if you see me in person somewhere and you take me out for a drink, I'll, I'll, we'll talk about okay, it. But. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, um, but you know, back but in, in terms of associations too, like, I feel like AIGA could do something like I saw, I think it was on Revision Path where there's a young lady. I think you in- interviewed her and she's some sort of liaison for, I don't know if it's just black designers or with all designers. Oh yeah. It was uh, Antoinette Carroll. Yes. She is the, the chair of the diversity and inclusion task force at AIGA. I'm on that task force as well. Can you tell me about that? Because I was a huge AIGA kind of like champion when I was in college. Cause I really got a lot out of my college chapter. But as a professional, I'm unsure of the benefits. Okay. Well, I can tell you right now there's probably not a lot. Okay. And that's only because the task force has really just kind of recently started. It took a bit of a break over the holidays. Uh, one of the co-chairs is now on maternity leave until like mid-May. So some things are stalled. I mean, I think everyone's kind of doing this volunteer. Right. So nobody's really committed to it full time like they should be. That's one thing that Antoinette is really pushing for is to have like a full-time diversity person at AIGA headquarters to make this kind of a an issue that goes throughout the organization. But some of the things that we're doing, I don't know how much I'm really privy to speak on, only because it's not like super finalized yet, but I can tell you what I do. So what I do is I do outreach to HBCUs to get uh, student groups started. Oh, okay. Because a lot of HBCUs don't have AIGA student groups. I think from my research out of all the HBCUs in the country about... A little over half, only half, have some kind of an art or design department of some sort. Mm-hmm. And so what I do is I reach out to them and say, okay, well, what can we do to kind of get a student group started? To get a student group started, you've got to have 10 students that each have 
a $50 membership to uh, AIJ, which is like the lowest amount, $50 a year. Right. And then with that, you've got to find the faculty advisor. The faculty advisor gets their membership waived as long as they have the 10 students. So there's a couple of problems there. First problem is they don't have 10 students. Right. Because a lot of HBCUs are pretty small. They're not dedicated design schools. So they won't have that many people in the major to even have you know enough to do that. And the second thing is sort of the cost. They may not have the $50 to do it, especially if there's no real intrinsic benefit to putting that down. And some people in the task force have been like, oh, the students, they have $50, you know. And I'm like, I'm not debating that they don't have $50. They just don't see why they should spend $50 on this. Like, there's no direct one-to-one parallel as to what. Like, if I take $50 and I buy a video game, I know I can get X number of enjoy- hours of enjoyment out of it for that $50 or if I take that $50 and I don't know, buy a bus ticket or take someone out to dinner. Like those are tangible benefits from spending that money. Whereas right. if you spend it on an AIGA membership, especially if it's something which is totally new, if you're not close to a chapter city, like what's the point? Like what am I getting out of really doing this? So it's working with them to kind of plant that seed to just get it started so we can help increase and diversify AIGA's member ranks and really get design out to more schools that, that sh- you know, that have design departments that should have kind of that AIGA, I guess, touch. Right. I don't know if touch That's is the right word. Because but- I went to Florida A&M University, which is HBCU. And I didn't even know that Florida A&M had a design or I think it's some, it's, I'm not sure if it's pure design. It might be journalism design or broadcast design. They have some sort of design program. I was not even aware that that existed. <laughs> until I graduated and I met someone who had gone through the program. So I think that's pretty cool that you guys are reaching out to HBCUs. That's actually kind of been some of the things I've talked about when I was on um, a diversity panel at one of my old employers was going out to HBCUs and actively recruiting people. Because, you know, the thing is, and another thing I want to touch on too is, you know, it design consultancies or firms or it, whatever you can diversify without even hiring designers. There's other jobs that have to happen to keep those businesses running that can also benefit from having, you know, some diversity. You can recruit HR people and all sorts of other things to kind of bring people on even. So the excuse that is a pipeline issue or there aren't enough black designers, there are other jobs that, you know, have to keep a business running that people could recruit for if they were really, you know, truly valued that as a part of their kind of, you know, business culture. Another interesting thing too, you said about no one's really dedicated to the task force full time. And this is not necessarily to criticize AIGA, but I think in general, it seems like a lot of diversity programs, I wonder like, are people dedicated to them full time? So the diversity kind of things that I was on at some of my old jobs, we don't have one at this one. I don't think really, I'm not sure we need it yet, but no one was working on it full-time either. And so I mm-hmm. wonder, like, what would happen if people worked on it full-time, if there was a full officer. Our parent company has a diversity executive, and she has a whole team. It's pretty diverse there. Our particular startup doesn't, but we're also pretty diverse. One thing that's interesting about that is, too, is our director is Bangladeshi, right? And so it's like, once you see someone in that kind of position, it just attracts more people in terms of, you know that the, the business and the culture is open to hiring that way. So I think a lot of businesses could do could benefit from actually taking their employees who do work there and having those people 
help them. I'm glad the AIG has people who have a, a grasp on the actual issue, like yourself and the other person um, that's on the diversity task force, because you guys really kind of know where to go right. HBCUs aren't necessarily on the radar of other people. So, and you also understand kind of the financial implications that the students might have that other people don't understand. So it's pretty cool to hear that AIG actually has a task force of people who kind of understand the issues working on the problem. Yeah, and anyone that's an AIGA member can request to be on the task force. I think right now it's about mm, maybe like 15 people, maybe 20. But other things that the task force is, is kind of tasked with doing is bringing diversity to their speakers directory. So AIGA, I think, has a speakers directory of people that they pull from for their different conferences and stuff. So adding diversity to that... We're looking at revamping and, and sort of restarting the Design Journeys archive that featured a lot of great designers like Emery Douglas mm-hmm. and, and Michelle Washington and stuff. There's a lot of moving parts, but like you said, nobody's doing it full time. We're all volunteering. So we kind of just have to do it when we we sort of have time. Like I know I slacked off. I haven't contacted anyone since November. But once I get back from South by Southwest, I'll have more time in my schedule to really start reaching back out to people. And I think because it'll be after, I think it's after spring break when I, when colleges are, I'm not really hundred percent sure, but I'll have more time to reach out to them and kind of get some things started. Cause we're, we're close to planting the seed at a few colleges that I think are ready to kind of make that leap that have the infrastructure and the students to make it happen. So it's really just kind of a matter of planting the seed, watering it, making sure that it grows and then, you know, sort of going from there. Right. That's great. I'm glad that's actually happening. Well, just to kind of wrap things up, where can our audience find out more about you online? So you can find me on my Twitter, which is at Christy T, Christy with a K and a Y. I'm working on my portfolio site. So the weird thing is because I've worked at IDEO and I'm just, I just left IDEO last year. There's not a lot that I can show in terms of the work mm-hmm. because it's super confidential. So I'm working on getting a portfolio site up of some of the stuff that I've worked on at Society of Grownups. That URL is boycottlettuce.com, but it's not up right now. It should be up within the next few weeks because I'm actively working on that. But Twitter is the best place to find me. I'm always tweeting. I love Twitter. Oh, I forgot to ask this. Are you a member of AIGA? I was a member of AIGA the first year out of design school, and I have not renewed my membership because I do not understand what the benefits are. And the, the professional membership is like a couple hundred dollars. I understand. I was going to say there is a member of the task force that's in Boston. Jason Stevens is his name. Stevens with a V. He's on the task force. I, I don't know how much he might be able to tell you, but if there's a chance to connect with him locally, that might give you some insight. I've been thinking about rejoining AIGA and I've been trying to weigh the benefits versus the, the cost. Yeah. No, I completely understand. I just joined last year, so I'm not going to like proselytize for them. <laughs> I was a huge yet. AIGA, though. In my college chapter, I was it for four years. Like, there was so much benefit from it there. But at a professional level, I just I didn't really get it. Also, too, working at IDO2, where I wasn't doing tons and tons of print work, I kind of was like, it seems like it's really print focused at the professional level and not necessarily yeah. with te- technology designers. So yeah. it, it didn't seem like a great fit. That's a fair criticism, I think. I feel the same way. It does kind of seem to be more focused on like art school, real world, not not real world, but like tangible print design or even graphic design to some respect, but not so much like web design or or something like that. Exactly. But but from what I've seen so far, they're pretty open. As long as you claim or, or can do design in some respect, 
they're pretty open. So if it's fashion design or furniture design or something like that, it's not, I think they're trying to sort of shake that image, especially now that they've turned a hundred, they're trying to like shake that, that image that they have to be just for like serious artistes, you know, with their wear berets and drink espresso or something. So this is really, really quickly. This is off the record. So I oh wait 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 well before we get off the record then I just want to thank you for coming <laughs> on the show thank you really so much this has been an awesome conversation we'll definitely have to talk again yes definitely I'm glad we're hooked up together on Twitter now and LinkedIn so you can always find me absolutely. And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Christy Tillman and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about the Detroit Water Project, Society of Grownups, and Christy's work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks as always to our sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and Creative Market. MailChimp is the premier email service provider choice for entrepreneurs and small businesses. Send 12,000 emails to 2,000 subscribers for free. No contracts and no credit card required. Check them out at MailChimp.com. Hover is the best way to buy and manage domain names, and they give you exactly what you need to get the job done. Get yourself a new domain or transfer your current domains to Hover and save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code SECONDYEAR at checkout. And lastly, there's Creative Market. It's a marketplace that sells beautiful, ready-to-use design content from thousands of independent creators from around the globe. Head over to creativemarket.com today, pick up those six free goods that are available for free every Monday. This episode was edited by R.J. Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with audio by Yellow Speaker. The outro audio they see me growing is courtesy of Jimmy Square. Make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave a rating and a review. It really helps get new listeners. I'll read your review right here on the show. And the more reviews, the more subscribers, the more we bump up in the rankings. Revision Path is a 318 media project. If you like the work we're doing with the podcast and the website, then visit revisionpath.com forward slash donate and let us know. Leave a tip in our tip jar, sponsor an upcoming episode, or join at the $5 fist bump level to show your ongoing support. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.